Section 15 of A Book of Giants. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Book of Giants by Henry Wisham Lanier. The Gogmagog. After the Trojan War, Aeneas, fleeing from the desolation of the city, came with Ascanius by ship unto Italy. There, for that Aeneas was worshipfully received by King Latinus, Turnus, king of the Rutilians, did wax envious and made war against him. When they met in battle, Aeneas had the upper hand, and after that Turnus was slain, obtained the kingdom of Italy and Lavinia, the daughter of Latinus. Later, when his own last day had come, Ascanius, now king in his stead, founded Alba on Tiber, and begat a son whose name was Silvius. Silvius, unknown to his father, had fallen in love with and privily taken to wife a certain niece of Lavinia, who was about to become a mother. When this came to the knowledge of his father, Ascanius, he commanded his wizards to discover whether the damsel should be brought to bed of a boy or a girl. When they had made sure of the matter by art magic, they told him that the child would be a boy that should slay his father and his mother, and after much travel in many lands should, albeit an exile, be exalted unto the highest honours. Nor were the wizards out in their forecast, for when the day came that she should be delivered of a child, the mother bare a son, but herself died in his birth. Howbeit the child was given in charge unto a nurse, and was named Brute. At last, after thrice five years had gone by, the lad, bearing his father company out a-hunting, slew him by striking him unwittingly with an arrow. For when the verderers drave the deer in front of them, Brute, thinking to take aim at them, smote his own father under the breast. Upon the death of his father he was driven out of Italy, his kinsfolk being wroth with him for having wrought a deed so dreadful. He went, therefore, as an exile into Greece, and there he met with the descendants of Hellenus, son of Priam, then held in bondage by the Greeks, freeing these countrymen by a sudden attack on the Greek stronghold, and capturing Pandrasus himself. The valiant adventurer presently sailed away with the king's daughter for a wife, and a ransom of over three hundred ships, laden with treasure and provisions. They ran on together for two days and a night with a fair current of wind, and drew to land at a certain island called Leogetia, which had been uninhabited ever since it was laid waste by pirates in the days of old. Howbeit, Brute sent three hundred men inland to discover by whom it might be inhabited, who, finding not a soul, slew such venison of divers kinds as they found in the glades and the forests. They came, moreover, to a certain deserted city, wherein they found a temple of Diana. Now in this temple was an image of the goddess that gave responses, if haply it were asked of any votary that there did worship. At last they returned to their ships, laden with the venison they had found, and report to their comrades the lie of the land and the situation of the city, bearing the duke on land that he make repair unto the temple, and after making offerings of propitiation, inquire of the deity of the place what land she would grant them as a fixed abiding place. By the commonest consent of all, therefore, Brute took with him Gerion, 
the augur and twelve of the elders and sought out the temple bringing with them everything necessary for making sacrifice when they arrived they surrounded their brows with garlands and set up three altars according to immemorial wont before the holy place to the three gods jove to wit and mercury as well as to diana and made unto each his own special libation rute himself holding in his right hand a vessel full of sacrificial wine and the blood of a white hind before the altar of the goddess with face upturned towards her image broke silence in these words goddess and forest queen the wild boar's terror thou who the maze of heaven or nether mansions walkest at will vouchsafe they read to earthward tell me what lands thy will it is we dwell in what sure abode lo there to thee for ever temples i vow and chant of holy maidens after he had nine times repeated this he walked four times round the altar poured forth the wine he held upon the hearth of offering laid him down upon the fell of a hind that he had stretched in front of the altar and after invoking slumber fell on sleep for as at that time it was the third hour of the night wherein are mortals visited by the sweetest sleep then it seemed him the goddess stood there before him and spake unto him on this wise brute past the realms of gaul beneath the sunset lieth an island girt about by ocean guarded by ocean erst the haunt of giants desert of late and meet for this thy people seek it for there is thine abode for ever there by thy sons again shall troy be builded there of thy blood shall kings be born hereafter sovran in every land the wide world over on waking from such a vision the duke remained in doubt whether it were a dream that he had seen or whether it were the living goddess herself who had thus foretold the land whereunto he should go at last he called his companions and related unto them from first to last all that had befallen him in his sleep they thereupon were filled with exceeding great joy and advised that they should at once return back to their ships and while the wind is still blowing fair should get under way as quickly as possible full sail for the west in search of that land which the goddess had promised nor did they tarry they rejoin their comrades and launch out into the deep and after ploughing the waves for a run of thirty days made the coast of africa still not knowing in which direction to steer their ships then came they to the altars of the Phileni, and the place of the salt pans, steering from thence betwixt Ruskicadia and the mountains Azare, where they encountered sore peril from an attack by pirates. Nevertheless they won the victory and went on their way, enriched by the spoil and plunder they had taken. From thence, passing the mouth of the river Malva, they arrived in Mauritania, where lack of food and drink compelled them to disembark and dividing themselves into companies they harried the whole region from end to end when they had revictualled their ships they made sail for the columns of hercules where they saw many of the monsters of the deep called sirens which surrounded the ships and well-nigh overwhelmed them 
Howbeit they made shift to escape, and came to the Tyrrhene Sea, where they found nigh the shore four generations born of the exiles from Troy, who had borne Antenor company in his flight. Their duke was called Corineus, a sober-minded man and excellent in counsel, mighty in body, valiance, and hardiness, insomuch as that, if it were he had to deal with a giant in single combat, he would straightway overthrow him as though he were wrestling with a lad. Accordingly, when they knew the ancient stock whereof he was born, they took him into their company, as well as the people whereof he was chieftain, that in after days were called Cornishmen after the name of their duke. He it was that in all encounters was more help to Brute than were any of the others. Then came they to Aquitaine, and entering into the mouth of the Loire, cast anchor there. Here they abode seven days, and explored the lie of the land. Gopharius Pictus then ruled in Aquitaine, and was king of the country, who, hearing the rumour of a foreign folk that had come with a great fleet and had landed within the frontier of his dominions, sent envoys to make inquiry whether they demanded peace or war. While the legates were on their way to the fleet, they met Corineus, who had just landed with two hundred men to hunt for venison in the forest. Thereupon they accost him and ask him by whose leave he hath thus trespassed into the king's forest to slay his deer. And when Corineus made them answer that in such a matter no leave nor license whatever could be held as needful, one of their number, Imbert by name, rushed forward and drawing his bow aimed an arrow at him. Corineus avoided the arrow and ran in upon Imbert as fast as he might, and with the bow that he carried all two break his head in pieces. Thereupon the rest fled, just making shift to escape his hands, and reported the death of their fellow to Gopharius. The duke of the Poitevin, taking the matter sorely to heart, forthwith assembled a mighty host to take vengeance upon them for the death of his messenger. Brute, hearing tidings of his coming, set guards over his ships, bidding the women and children remain on board, while he himself, along with the whole flower of his army, marches forth to meet the enemy. When the engagement at last began, the fighting is fierce on both sides, and after they had spent a great part of the day in battling, Corineus thought it a shame that the Aquitanians should hold their ground so stoutly, and the Trojans not be able to press forward to the victory. So taking heart afresh, he called his own men apart to the right of the battle, and forming them in rank, made a rapid charge upon the enemy. And when, with his men in close order, he had broken the front ranks, he never stinted striking down the enemy till he had cut his way right through the battalion, and forced them all to flee. Good luck had supplied the place of a sword he lost with a battle-axe, wherewith he cleft in twain any that came next him, from the crown of the head right down to the girdle-stead. Brute marvels, his comrades and even the enemy marvel, at the hardihood and valour of the man, who brandishing his battle-axe among the flying host, added not a little terror by shouting, "'Whither fly, ye cowards! Whither fly, ye cravens! Turn back, I tell ye, turn, and do battle with Corineus! Shame upon ye! So many thousands as are ye, do ye flee before my single arm? Flee, then, 
and take with ye at least this comfort in your flight, that it is I who am after ye, I who ere now have so oft been wont to drive the Tyrene giants in flight before me, and to hurl them to hell by threes and fours at a time. At these words of his, a certain earl named Subardus, with three hundred men turned back and charged down upon him. But Corineus, in raising his shield toward the blow, forgot not the battle-axe he held in his hand. Lifting it overhead, he smote him a buffet upon the top of his helmet that cleft him right through into two halves. After this he straightway rusheth in among the rest, whirling his axe, and a passing furious slaughter he maketh. Hurrying hither and thither, he avoideth receiving a single stroke, but never resteth a moment from smiting down his enemies. Of one he loppeth off arm and hand, of another he cleaveth the shoulders from the body, of another he striketh off the head at a single blow, of another he severeth the legs from the thigh. All dash headlong upon him only, he dasheth headlong in upon them all. Brute, who beholdeth all this, glowing with love of the man, hurrieth forward with a company to succour him. Then ariseth a mighty shouting betwixt the two peoples. The strokes are redoubled, and passing bloody is the slaughter on the one side and the other. But it endureth not long. The Trojans win the day, and drive King Gopharius and his Poitvin in flight before them. Gopharius, escaping by the skin of his teeth, betook him into the parts of Gaul to have succour of his kinsfolk and acquaintance. At that time twelve kings there were in Gaul, each of equal rank, under whose dominion the whole country was ruled. They all received him kindly, and with one accord did pledge them to drive out from the frontiers of Aquitaine this foreign folk that had arrived there. Brute, Overjoyed at the said victory, enricheth his comrades with the spoils of the slain, and after again forming the ranks in companies, he leadeth his host inland with the intention of sacking the whole country, and loading his ships with the countless treasure. Accordingly he burneth the cities in all directions, fire after fire, and ransacketh their hidden hordes. Even the fields were laid waste, and citizen and countrymen alike and subjected to a piteous slaughter, his aim being to exterminate the unhappy race to the last man. But after that he had thus visited with bloodshed well nigh the whole of Aquitaine, he came into the place where now standeth the city of Tours, which as Homer beareth witness he afterwards himself builded, finding after diligent survey that the place was convenient as a refuge, he there decided to pitch his camp, so that if need were he could betake him thereinto. For sore misgiving had he by reason of the arrival of Gopharius, who had marched into the neighbourhood along with the kings and princes of Gaul, and a mighty host of armed warriors to do battle against him. When his camp was fully finished, he awaited Gopharius for two days therein, confident alike in his own prudence and in the hardihood of the young men whereof he was the chieftain. Now, when Gopharius heard of the Trojans being there, he advanced by forced marches day and night until he came well within sight of Brute's camp. Gazing grimly thereon, yet somewhat smiling withal, he burst forth into these words. Alas, what grievous destiny is here! Have these ignoble exiles pitched their camp within dominions of mine? To arms, ye warriors, to arms! 
and charge through their serried ranks. Right soon may we take captive this herd of half-men like sheep and hold them in bondage throughout our realm. Forthwith all they that he had brought with him leapt to arms and marched upon their enemies ranked in twelve battalions. But not after any woman wise did Brute range his men and march to meet them, prudently instructing his troops as to what they were to do, how to advance and in what order to hold their ground, he gives the word to charge. At the first onset, the Trojans for a time had the upper hand, and fearful was the slaughter they made of the enemy, for nigh two thousand of them fell, and the rest were so daunted at the sight that they all but turned to flee. But where the numbers of men are the greater, there the more often doth victory abide. In this case, therefore, the Gauls, albeit that at first they were beaten back, yet being thrice so many as their enemies made shift to form themselves again in rank and charged in again on every side against the Trojans, whom they compelled after much bloodshed to take refuge in the camp. Having thus obtained the victory, they beleaguered them within the camp, never thinking but that before they departed thence the besieged would either offer their necks to the fetters or suffer a cruel and lingering death from the pangs of hunger. In the meanwhile, on the night following, Corineus entered into council with Brute, and agreed with him that he would issue forth of the camp that same night by certain byways, and would lie hidden in the neighbouring forest until daybreak. And when Brute, issuing forth just before dawn, should be engaged in battle with the enemy, he himself with his company should attack them in the rear, and charging in upon them, put them to the sword. Brute applauded this device of Corineus who, cautiously issuing forth, as he had proposed with three thousand men, betook him to the depths of the forest. Accordingly, when the morrow morning began to break, Brute ordained his men in companies, and opening the gates of the camp, marched forth to battle. The Gauls straightway set themselves to oppose him, and disposing their troops in battle array, came to close quarters with him. Many thousands of men are at once cut down on both sides, and many are the wounds given and received, for not a man spareth his adversary. It chanced that a certain Trojan was there present named Tyronus, a nephew of Brutes, more than whom there was none more valiant and hardy save only Corineus himself. He with his single sword slew no less than six hundred men. Unhappily he was slain before his time by a sudden onslaught of the Gauls, and the foresaid city of Tours acquired the name thereof by reason of his being there buried. And while the troops on both sides were in the very thickest of the battle, Corineus came upon them of a sudden and charged the enemy at the double in the rear. Straightway the others, pressing forward from the front, renewed the attack more hotly and strained them to the utmost to complete the slaughter. The Gauls were aghast with dismay, even at the very shout of the Cornishmen as they charged in on the rear, and thinking that they were more in number than they were, fled hot foot from the field. The Trojans are on their heels, hewing them down in pursuit, nor cease they to follow them up until the victory is their own. Brute, nevertheless, albeit he were right glad at heart to have achieved so signal a triumph, was sore grieved by anxiety on one account, for he saw that whilst his own numbers were minished daily, those of the Gauls were daily multiplied. Wherefore, 
Seeing it was doubtful whether he could any longer hold out against them, he chose rather to retire to his ships while the greater part of his army was still whole, and the glory of the victory still fresh, and to set sail in quest of the island which the divine monition had prophesied should be his own, nor was there any tarriance. With the ascent of his men he returned to his fleet, and after loading his ships with all the treasures and luxuries he had acquired, he re-embarked, and with a prosperous wind sought out the promised land, where he landed at last in safety at Totnes. At that time the name of the island was Albion, and of none was it inhabited, save only of a few giants. Nevertheless, the pleasant aspect of the land, with the abundance of fish in the rivers and deer in the choice forests thereof, did fill Brute and his companions with no small desire that they should dwell therein. Wherefore, after exploring certain districts of the land, they drove the giants they found to take refuge in the caverns of the mountains, and divided the country among them according as the duke made grant thereof. They began to till the fields, and to build them houses in such sort that after a brief space you might have thought it had been inhabited from time immemorial. Then at last Brute calleth the island Britain, and his companions Britons, after his own name, for he was minded that his memory should be perpetuated in the derivation of the name, whence afterward the country speech, which was aforetime called Trojan, or crooked Greek, was called British. But Corineus called that share of the kingdom which had fallen unto him by lot Cornwall, after the manner of his own name, and the people Cornishmen, therein following the duke's example, for albeit that he might have had the choice of a province before all the others that had come thither, yet was he minded rather to have that share of the land which is now called Cornwall, whether from being as it is the Cornu, or Corn, of Britain, or from a corruption of the said name Corineus. For naught gave him greater pleasure than to wrestle with the giants, of whom was greater plenty there than in any of the provinces that had been shared amongst his comrades. Among others was a certain hateful one by name Gogmagog, twelve cubits in height, who was of such lustihood that when he had once uprooted it he would wield an oak tree as lightly as it were a wand of hazel. The ancient books of Arabia and Persia are full of marvellous tales of Gog and Magog, Yadjuji and Madjuji, as they are called. These giants they locate in Tartary, and the Caucasian wall from the Caspian to the Black Sea was supposed to have been built by them of all sorts of metals. In Genesis, Magog is the tenth son of Japheth. Gog and Magog are spoken of by Ezekiel, and later Gog and Magog were names of nations. Brute, having thus got footing in Britain, was preparing to improve the same when Albion, who had named this island after his own name, by which it is sometimes called at this day, having intelligence thereof, raised his whole power, being men of gigantic stature and vast strength, and bearing for their arms huge clubs of knotty oak, battle-axes, whirlbats of iron, and globes full of spikes, fastened to a long pole by a chain, and with these he fell upon the invaders on a certain day when Brute was holding high festival to the gods. A bloody battle was fought, wherein the Trojans were worsted and many of them slain, and their whole army was forced to retire. Brute, 
hereupon considering the disadvantage between his men and the giants, devised a stratagem to overthrow them, by digging in the night a very long and deep trench, at the bottom impaling it with sharp stakes and covering it with boughs and rotten hurdles, on which he caused to be laid dried leaves and earth, only leaving some passages well known to his men by particular marks. This being done, he dared the giants to a second battle, which Albion readily accepted, and the fight being begun after some dispute, Brute seemed to retire, whereupon the giants pressed on him with great fury, and the Trojans, retiring nimbly beyond their trench, made a stand, and plied them with a shower of darts and arrows, which manner of fight they were unacquainted with, whereby many of them were slain. However, Albion encouraging his men to come to handy strokes with their enemies, they rushed forward, and the vanguard immediately perished in the trenches, and the Trojans continuing to shoot their arrows very thick, the giants were put to flight and pursued into Cornwall, where in another bloody fight Albion was slain by Brute, fighting hand to hand. But his huge brother, Gogmagog, Brute had commanded to be taken alive, as he was minded to see a wrestling bout betwixt him and Corineus, who was beyond measure keen to match himself against such monsters. So Corineus, overjoyed at the prospect, girt himself for the encounter, and flinging away his arms challenged him to a bout at wrestling. At the start, on the one side, stands Corineus, on the other, the giant, each hugging the other tight in the shackles of their arms, both making the very air quake with their breathless gasping. It was not long before Gogmagob, grasping Corineus with all his force, break him three of his ribs, two on the right side and one on the left. Roused thereby to fury, Corineus gathered up all his strength, heaved him up on his shoulders and ran with his burden as fast as he could for the weight to the seashore nighest at hand. Mounting up to the top of a high cliff and disengaging himself, he hurled the deadly monster he had carried on his shoulder into the sea, where falling on the sharp rocks he was mangled all to pieces and dyed the waves with his blood, so that ever thereafter that place from the flinging down of the giant hath been known, Lamgorgmagot, to wit, Gogmagog's leap, and is called by that name unto this present day. Corineus tells of his own exploit in the old tragedy of Locrine. When first I followed thee in thine brave king, I hazarded my life in dearest blood, to purchase favour at your princely hands, and for the same in dangerous attempts, in sundry conflicts, and in diverse broils, I shewed the courage of my manly mind. For this I combated with Gatelus, the brother to Gafaris of Gaul. For this I fought with furious Gogmagog, a savage captain of a savage crew, and for these deeds brave, Cornwall, I received, a grateful gift given by a grateful king, and for this gift, this life and dearest blood will Corineus spend for Brutus' sake. He does not, however, relate the most wonderful part of the affair, which comes to us through Fulke Fitzvarine, an outlawed baron of the thirteenth century. Fulke tells how after Gogmagog was slain, a spirit of the devil entered into his body and came into these parts, and long held possession of the country that never Britain dared to inhabit it, and how afterwards King Bran, the son of Donovan, 
caused the ancient city of the giants to be rebuilt, repaired the walls, and strengthened the great fosses, and he became Bork and Great March. And the devil came by night, and took away everything that was therein, since such time nobody has ever inhabited there. But Payne Peveril, a proud and courageous knight, heard this story, and determined to brave the demon. The latter appeared in a fearful tempest under the semblance of Gog Magog. He carried in his hand a great club, and from his mouth cast fire and smoke, with which the whole town was illuminated. However, devoutly making the sign of the cross, the knight attacked him so fiercely with his trusty sword that ere long the demon cried for mercy, and disclosed the secret treasures of the town, promising pain that he should be lord of all that soil. Another account says that there were two brothers, Gog and Magog, who were taken prisoners by Brute, and led in triumph to the place where London now stands, and when a palace was erected by the side of the river Thames, on the present site of Guild Hall, these two giants were chained to the palace gates as porters, in memory of which their effigies after their deaths were set up as they now appear in Guild Hall. Certain it is that these two colossal figures, the older carrying a morning star, the spiked globe fastened to a long pole by a chain, with which horsemen used to demolish their enemies in a melee, have kept watch and ward over London gates for centuries, and were believed by thousands of children to descend from their pedestals and go to dinner when St. Paul's clock struck twelve. In 1415, victorious Henry V was welcomed into London by a male and female giant, standing at the entrance to the bridge, the man holding an axe and a bunch of keys. A few years later, Henry VI was similarly greeted. In 1554, upon the public entry of Philip and Mary, Two great images of giants stood at the bridge, one named Gog Magog, the Albion, one Corineus, and all through the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries these mighty reminders of the old tale figured in public pageants. These figures were made only of wicker work and pasteboard, put together with great art and ingenuity, and these two terrible original giants had the honour yearly to grace my Lord Mayor's show being carried in great triumph in the time of the pageants, and when that eminent service was over, remounted their old stations in Guild Hall, till by reason of their very great age, old time, with the help of a number of city rats and mice, had eaten up all their entrails. The dissolution of the two old, weak, and feeble giants gave birth to the two present substantial and majestic giants, who by order and at the city charge were formed and fashioned. Captain Richard Saunders, an eminent carver in King Street, Cheapside, was their father, who, after he had completely finished, clothed, and armed these, his two sons, they were immediately advanced to their lofty stations in Guild Hall, which they have peacefully enjoyed ever since the year 1708. For over two hundred years now, these fourteen-foot hollow wooden figures have stood in the Guild Hall, one holding his spiked ball, the other a halbert. Many a parade have they figured in, many a child has been frightened by them, many a visitor has wondered at them, but few enough have ever read the tale of Corineus's encounter with the terrible original. The city of Bayeux still has its festival parade with a huge effigy commemorating the slaying of the terrible Brun the Dane by Robert of Argoge, 
In Douai, huge Gaillant with his wife and children parades the streets for three days during the July Kermesse. Metz, Lille, Dunkirk, and many Spanish cities, too, have had as an annual feature some such civic commemoration of giants connected with the city's history, and huge Antigonus has a permanent place in the coat of arms of Antwerp. End of section 15 Read by Sandra, the last day of 2021.